This is Stephen Kleinman, Talia Geiger, and I'm Elizabeth Scanlon, and this is the American Poetry Review Podcast. Hey, welcome back. This is season two of our podcast. Uh, today on the show, we're going to be discussing some highlights from the May-June 2021 issue of the American Poetry Review, uh, including but not limited to uh, some appreciations of Alison C. Rollins, uh, Megan Fernandez, uh, Jack Gilbert uh, in his extraordinary interview from the 90s with Forrest Gander, and much, much more. This is Allison C. Rollins reading my poem Springtime Again after Sun Ra and Denez Smith's Summer Somewhere. Again, a spring in the step of boys headed to meet their maker, a swagger, a darkness sprung with the obsession of flies. Sunflower seeds litter God's front porch, the yard overrun with dandelions, yellow starbursts picked over for the pinks. Again, snow, angels, girls named hope and faith, their braids capped with black and gold beads, glimmer of fireflies affixed with rubber bands. The stork is actually a blue-footed booby. The babies come alive. Summer and Sally Walker swaddled in brown liquor. Johnny takes his spirits neat, ice uncalled for at winter's end. Why must I chase the cream? Because cat rules everything around me. Young blood and young world of pussy-whipped buffoons. I see you. Can you see me watching you loving it? Whether microscope or telescope, my body of work is accustomed to gaze. An in-between state contributes greatly to a country of longing. When in flux, I have a strong constitution. I no longer have a home in the present. My sleeping bag splayed on Dante's fire escape. The circles of hell are a Spenserian stanza, a rhyme scheme of uh, na-na-na-na. When judgment comes, ain't nowhere to run. April snow is how time disciplines its children. Pride cometh before. The fall, the red-headed oaks made our blood boil. I don't believe God was ready to call me home, but now was as good a time as any. When asked my regrets, I just remembered. Remembered freedom was life's great lie. Remembered body is another word for cage. Remembered night knew my name before I ever had reason to fear. Some days are measured by sejuras, some hours by snakes in the grass. Only a foolish king would mistake the forest for the trees. This is how we are reborn. 
Come Resurrection Sunday, we pour out a trail of Cadillacs, rabbit feet and gator teeth hung from rearview mirrors, the trunks thumping so loud it's enough to wake the dead, to dust the dirt from shoulders, to make room for the elbows and capsized knees. In the end, we knew what was ahead. Post-apocalypse was our present tense. We sold keychains at the pearly gates, light up toys and airbrushed t-shirts, two for 10 or three for 20. The hustle never dies, it just changes. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. That was Springtime Again by Alison C. Rollins in the May-June 2021 issue of the American Poetry Review. So we wanted to start with Springtime Again uh, from this new issue, uh, in part because it is so beautiful, but also because uh, it seems like a real uh, jump into the water of this moment that we've been away so long, and, and, uh, and here it is Springtime Again. And the, the ongoingness of it, I feel like this is a poem that uh, has a really long sense of time that it extends backwards and forwards and uh, really draws that through line uh, through all these different experiences. So um, yeah, that was a big one for me in this issue. It's interesting to me that the poem can be quite um, optimistic. Mm -hmm. And then that last moment is not, Mm -hmm. uh, which which gets at the sense of, of, the discouragement, even at an optimistic moment, there's the worry that mm-hmm. we're not at an optimistic uh, moment. Right. It's like wonderfully pessimistic. <laughs> it's a bit snarky, um, but with good reason at the same time. Right. Well, and, and also like not having any, um, not wanting to have any uh, rose colored glasses mm-hmm. on, right? Like that it, uh, there's so many moments in this poem, like where it says, this is how we are reborn come resurrection Sunday we pour out a trail of Cadillacs, rabbit feet and gator teeth hung. And, and there's just all of this, uh, this imagery of like sort of superstition, of like hoping for something better, but not really quite, you know, not really feeling 100% sure of it. Um, that I think is, uh, yeah, it just, I feel like we're all, we're all feeling some of that right now, that there are so many of us are feeling that uh, there is this uh, hope that we can jump back in and make up for lost time and everything, right? But I love this line, uh, girls named hope and faith. It's Mm -hmm. the first moment in the poem where I'm transported out of the poem. You know, that that experience of I'm no longer experiencing a poem, I'm just in the world, Mm -hmm. right? And um, I have to say that I I come from a, a, a different community than Alison Rollins, I'm white for starters. Um, I have a Jewish parent and a Catholic parent, and so many of the people in my Catholic family are named Faith. <laughs> and um, it, it, this this line just sort of reminds me that of why people name their children Faith and Hope. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's out of it, it, it's out of faith and hope. Mm-hmm. Well, and 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 that you know having. I mean, 
being entrusted with the care of children, right, is is a, a leap of faith, right? Because only one of us here knows that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, use your imagination. It's it's I, I assure you, it's a leap of faith because you, uh, uh, especially in a, you know, coming out of a pandemic year where you learn very vividly how quickly things can change and how your support mm-hmm. systems can sort of just fall away. Um, but uh, you know, we have we've come through. So, uh, yeah, feeling lucky to be here. Feeling lucky to be here. Um, we, as we were coming into the studio today, we were saying like, oh, just like old times. But it's like, old times was only a year ago, but it does yeah. feel like, oh my gosh. Forever. <laughs> Forever ago. I think that we... plant in here was alive the last time. Yeah, we there's definitely here. a little bit of cobwebs in the corners um, of our minds and a of minute. our room. <laughs> That's right. It's been a minute is one of my favorite sayings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sh- mm-hmm. I'm sort of not sure how to do it, but I feel like we have a responsibility to talk about the moment as it relates to racism in this poem. Mm-hmm. It's not expressly about racism, which mm-hmm. is one of the reasons I think it's really powerful. But it is a poem that is, um, I mean, I, I can't help but hear something about our uh, moment as it relates to the killing of murdering of black people in those last lines Mm -hmm. um the hustle that never dies it just changes and the more things change the more they stay the same so Mm -hmm. well and we should also i mean for those not yet looking at it on the page uh you know draw attention to the fact that uh this poem is written after sun ra and Mm Inez smith's summer somewhere so you know this this poet allison c rollins is is placing this in a in a lineage in a continuum of other artists who have who have grappled with this topic and who and whose work is is explicitly uh interested in how we how we look at racism or how we we're not looking at racism um and how we're experiencing that affecting lives and and art and and uh and our ideas of justice one of the most interesting things in this poem to me is i've been trying to think of a a a better term than this for it but slippage Mm. between things you know um uh so many great lines but uh one of them my sleeping bag splayed on dante's fire Mm. escape and you know for a second we're in the world of dante how do we bring the world of dante into uh, Alison Rollins' world. Mm-hmm. How do we bring Alison Rollins' world into Dante? Mm-hmm. Uh, this slippage that happens, line break, mm-hmm. escape. Right. Um, the the music, I mean, Cat Rules Everything Around Me, that is out of my high school <laughs> <laughs> musical experience. Um, so th- I think that there's there's really a, a wonderful slippage between when we when we talk about the lineage of this poem, we're slipping into that lineage and out of that lineage. We're bringing this the 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 current world into um, old conversations and old conversations into new conversations mm-hmm. in this poem. Mm-hmm. They're all intertwined and a part of each other. Right. Yeah. Whether microscope or telescope, my body of work is accustomed to gaze. An in-between state contributes greatly to a country of longing. That's another that's another thing that the poem does that uh, weaves in mm-hmm. these statements mm-hmm. so beautifully, but really it's it's a created world. Mm-hmm. It's an it's a poem full of images, but then we get um that that quote that you just pulled, which is 
such a statement about um, my body and gaze and the state, you mm-hmm. know, different important topics. Right. And then also a little bit later, the body is another word for cage, just mm. furthering that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's an amazing piece of work. Yeah, I just love it. So one of the things about this issue that I was very excited about was this interview uh, from the archives, or not the archives of APR, but the archives of Forrest Gander. Uh, He conducted an interview with Jack Gilbert back in 1995 that he had on cassette tapes in his house that he never did anything with. Uh, until he recently had them transcribed. And so he uh, contacted me and said, would you be interested in seeing this interview? And I basically fell out of my chair. (laughs) I was very interested in seeing this interview. Um, And as it now appears in the magazine, I hope that everyone will read it and enjoy it. Um, I think that Jack Gilbert is such an extraordinary poet. Um, But as Stephen and Talia and I were talking about it earlier, it occurred to me that I'm not sure that Jack Gilbert is as known by the younger generation as Mm -hmm. I might have assumed he was. Um, I personally haven't really heard his name before. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I was surprised to read that he was in conversation with Allen Ginsberg because, like, of course, that's a big name. Lots of people know. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's a great poet. So he is a great poet. And he's and. He's from the, a sort of, or he, he exemplifies a moment, I think, that is, is kind of a bygone era, right? In which he was, like, famous. Mm-hmm. Like, he, you know, he was publishing for 50 years. And as a younger man, like, in his early publishing career, he was so famous that he was, like, you know, on the cover of Esquire and, like, featured in Time and, like, all of this, this sort of um, a kind of attention that I don't think writers usually get yeah uh, certainly not these days um but i i i think about that with a certain um a certain sort of uh, uh doubled feeling about it right because on the one hand i think like that's really cool that this guy had that like privilege right that mm-hmm. incredible good fortune to live that life on the other hand i kind of feel like well <laughs> you know <laughs> like the the um like who would we, who would we want uh, to be in that position today? I feel like maybe it's it does it's a disservice. It would be different to everyone, I think. Yeah. And like, is it a disservice to poetry? It might be. I don't. Know. <laughs> I don't know. Without uh, without saying names, that I uh, there there is a, a great one, maybe one of my favorite uh, contemporary poets who was just in a in an advertisement for something <laughs> that was uh, put on sports games. <laughs> Uh, recently, <laughs> as, as a sports games fan, so I really said that yeah. awkwardly. Um, but I wonder if uh, one of the things that happens is that in the moment it's hard to tell, and like you know, twenty years from now there will be somebody who was a big star. Mm. We just didn't know it. We didn't know it, right? Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what I really earnestly do. Um, admire about like the mythos of Jack Gilbert as like the great poet is that he did kind of exist outside of the values of capitalism in a certain way. I mean, you know, when we look at this interview, I, um, there are so many moments where I think like, oh my gosh, he's talking about, he doesn't have to work that much because he'll teach for one semester and then take five years off. 
And I'm like, sounds like a what? dream. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and so, I mean, that's not entirely on him. Like some of that is a choice that he was making to like engage this kind of life of relative poverty. But some of it too was that like we just that was a different country. That was a different economy in which he lived. It's where a it's different like, level of student debt that people were carrying. Yes, yeah, that's definitely that's part of it sure. too. But it's like you could, you know, he famously went and like he lived in Greece for many years and he lived in Belgium and he lived in, you know, all these places all over the world. And he, uh, in this interview, talks about how he was never really going to a place necessarily to um, objectify the place, but to glean like what he could from living so cheaply there mm-hmm. like he's like it didn't really matter that it was greece it was nice that it was greece but being in greece made it possible for him to live for months and months and months on very little money you know um there is a way of life that some people like to adopt that isn't it's not very american <laughs> right, right um i think there's like a term in french called flaneur which yes. like aimless walking yeah yes and like you can just be living just to live mm-hmm. and i know that's an enticing idea that sounds kind of cool but uh yeah it's not a very americanized thing that we have so right. it does look kind of strange right there's this one uh there's this one passage that i uh, kept like coming back to in this interview where he says uh again to Forrest Gander uh, who conducted this amazing uh conversation with him where he's talking about in his early days in San Francisco uh, that he was living in like a rooming house. And he said, I sat up in the turret for two years trying to figure out what there was to want for an adult because I, I wasn't much interested in having a lot of fun. I'd had a lot of fun in my life, but if there's something you don't do now, you may not have a chance to do it later. And I was like, I mean, that's a very simple statement on, mm-hmm. on one hand, but the idea that he so earnestly um, considered this idea of what is there to want, right? That it's not about material things and it's not necessarily about, you know, tenure or what have you, but that he was taking on this kind of personal project of like, what is, what is it supposed to be about? Like, what, what should we chase? You know? Yeah, deep soul searching Soul searching, type of stuff. yeah, yeah. What can I say? I love soul searching. <laughs> he, he also talks in here a lot about the idea of what, um, what poetry is supposed to do, right? And he, uh, there's a passage in which he says, poetry commits magic. It's incredibly inefficient. It's like somebody watching somebody waltzing and saying, what an inefficient way to get across the floor. <laughs> and I just, I love that so much that there was this, um, um, this awareness of, of inefficiency as something to be valued, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that reminds me of another essay that we have in this issue on self-censorship, faith, and the unwriting by G.C. Waldrip. And oh, I, right, yeah. I have to say, uh, I think I'm just going to be a fanboy for a couple of minutes for how much I loved this essay. I thought it was so interesting. And um, hopefully we won't give too much of it away here and you'll go and you'll read the whole thing. It's only two sections, a page and a half. Um, but the, the, the connection between that discussion 
And this one is that a lot of what Waldrip talks about in this essay is the responsibility of the poet. Mm -hmm. um, so the or idea... Or who you're responsible to, right? Who like you're responsible who you're accountable for. Who you're accountable There are two quotes that I, that I pulled out of this essay to share. The first is, and the more I know or think I know, the more likely the writing will veer into prose, mm -hmm. which is the idiom of knowing as opposed to seeking or receiving. Um, so I, I love that quote because it, um, you know, says something mean about prose <laughs> and also says something mean about the, the poetry of, of already knowing. I love how a poem can wonder think it's mean though yeah, I, think I was it's gonna like, say I mean I love that you I love that you, it's like juicy for you in the way that feels mean yeah but I think that it's um I think it's just such a wonderful distinction it's like a it's like a scalpel through like this yeah. is one thing and this is another and that really um like what a what a, a gift of clarity right mm -hmm. absolutely like to have this uh turning point because because certainly as someone who teaches I think we awesome like well, I'm, I'm putting this on you because I'm not teaching now, but I'm just looking at Steve and saying, <laughs> you do this. I don't know. Um, but that we are so often trying to define, like, how do we know it's a poem? Like, right. how or when does it stop being a poem? Right? Yeah, and this question, this the, or, or this quote really gave me a better way of thinking about that, I thought, mm -hmm. uh, than sort of trying to define what a poem is. Mm -hmm. um, he's, he spends the early part of the essay talking about the idea of faith and the idea of um, whether it's okay to have faith in a poem or to have faith at the center of a poem. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it just le left me thinking about how all of us have, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the northern pointing uh, arrow on our, on our, what are those things compass? called? Compass. Yeah. Like, are you trying to say northern star? <laughs> or, yeah. Uh, compass. Where, where, yeah. where uh, we have some sense of uh, maybe not what a poem should be, but what a poem says. Or where you're trying to go. Or where you're trying to go. And to follow the compass metaphor. He, ta <laughs> he talks about that as a revision tool mm -hmm. and going back and looking and saying, mm -hmm. um, uh, from section two, he talks about this idea of... Um, his, his aunt, I believe it was, uh, says, you know, and if you do this and I he's, learn something about when my he's, mother. When, and he's ta when he's talking about looking at gene genealogy and he's right. talking about actually like delving into family history. Go on. If I do this and I learn something about my mother, my grandmother, what will that do for me and to me? How will that change who I am, the life I led, the lives I could have led? Just the idea of the responsibility of a poet right. to do something with a poem you intended to do mm -hmm. and that if you do harm, which is fine, I think, you intended to do that harm. Whoa, that's heavy. <laughs> I thought it was a heavy essay. No, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it, I think it's fantastic. But um, um, it's interesting to me that you uh, sort of heard it in the... Um, I mean, I think the, the consideration of harm is definitely in there, but I was looking at it sort of from the opposite viewpoint of like, who does it serve, right? That that's, but that's maybe, those are two sides of the same coin, mm -hmm. yeah. right? That, that especially when you're talking about um, revelations, when you're talking about revealing personal history or, or um, you know, really examining something that maybe hasn't been cracked open before. 
Um, but I think, I think too, that there's, there was a notion, um, really a, a kernel in this essay that I found so meaningful too, that the idea of poems as shareable artifacts, mm-hmm. shareable artifacts of experience, right? That maybe I, the poet, I, the writer or the speaker of the poem have had an experience that I can't, I can't give it to you. I can't put it on you, right? You can't walk in those shoes, but I can create an artifact of that experience. That goes from hand to hand, mind to mind, heart to heart. That's right. As you said. You got it. You yeah. Know, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I also love that poems are described as true, like before prose is like the idiom of knowing. Mm. Prose equals knowing and poems are these true little artifacts that you can share with mm-hmm. other people. It's just a very interesting notion. Right, because the poem defines its own terms. Yes. Right? That's uh, something that he goes into here as well. Um, yeah, I I also, I, I'm, I'm a fan. I really think this was um, doing some important, some important investigation. Uh, In a short amount of time, which really. is really yeah. an admirable quality. Right. The walls became the world all around. 18,000 years ago, my ancestors burned bones and hematite in the Lascaux caves. Equines and stags mid-gallop on walls of calcite. I imagined them gathering in their own blackness. As a boy, I thought brown and black were stalked by death. I tried to imagine the 17,000 years Lascaux were left alone in darkness. If you read about the caves, historians will say they were discovered in 1940. 55 years later, on my first day of kindergarten, a girl said hi to me and I hid behind Mama. She's black and fat, I said. When I look up the definition for black, I find 15 entries with negative associations. Black holes burn at billionths of a Kelvin. Astronomers say that makes them ideal black bodies since they are impossible to observe. Unfinished steel is said to be black. When I look in the mirror, I feel shame for my six-year-old self. Much of me is unfinished. Soil that flooded the Nile was said to be black, which meant glorious and fertile. I know the awe of blackness, the night sky marveling in hope of the infinite. Galaxies drift in a blackness greater than our understanding. I think of Mama pouring molasses by the spoonful in her ginger snaps cookies. She'd let me have a spoon after she was done with the batter, the mineral taste almost iron. So another uh, really 
special thing that I wanted to point out in this issue, uh, a new, you know, I always take a special um, pride and pleasure when we have writers in the issue that we've never published before. Um, and so Shamar Hill is someone whose work I had never seen before we received these poems. We have two of his poems in the issue. Um, and uh, we have a recording of him reading uh, The Walls Became the World All Around, um, which we're sharing with you today. Um, but yeah, I just, I wanted to, to talk about that poem also because sometimes when we're putting together, when we're putting together an episode of the podcast or we're putting together an issue of the magazine, I sometimes find myself not thinking that there's a theme until after we're done. <laughs> and I, I'm always mystified by that um, because this poem, I think, also, much like Springtime Again and much like uh, the work that G.C. Waldrop was talking about and um, has this kind of through line reaching back to prehistoric era, uh, reaching back, uh, the poem begins 18,000 years ago, um, reaching through the speaker's own childhood and then sort of extending forward into we know not what, right? Um, as I'm reading it, in my reading of it. Um, also, do you guys, I don't know, this is, this is another sort of parenting moment for me, but do you guys recognize the phrase, the walls became the world all around? It's a pop no. quiz. <laughs> it's, from, it's from a children's book. Do you remember the children's book, Harold and the Purple Crayon? Absolutely. That book, I mean, when my son was a little boy, I read, must have read that book to him a thousand times. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a long-standing favorite. It's been around, I mean, I'm sure I read it when I was a child, too, because it's been around since the 60s. But um, um, Harold and the Purple Crayon has this, um, you know, the whole sort of narrative of that story is this little boy who draws on everything and kind of creates this imaginary world around him. Um, but the, uh, this poem, of course, uh, jumping off in a different place. I love the investigation of history that this poem has in mm -hmm. it, and particularly the, um, uh, the time that it spends on the idea of black. Mm. Um, and the image that sticks in my mind, is this an image or or something else is uh, the um, unhoned knives. Mm -hmm. The unhoned steel is called black steel. Mm -hmm. And then once you beat it into shape, mm. which is not in the poem, or but that's what I was yeah. thinking. Mm -hmm. yeah. Once it's sharpened, once yeah. it's broken into the yeah. shape, that's some, uh -huh. then it's something else. Then it's steel. Right. Yeah, that's a powerful image in of itself. Right. And it goes on to further show that black is in everything. It is the earth. It always has been. It's right. You it know, the, it is the galaxies. Yes. It is, it, right. It is the iron ore and the molasses and the like. Ever. I mean, it, it 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 goes through. It permeates like every sense um, in this in this poem. Um, and I just, yeah, I'm completely wowed by it. The soil uh, that flooded the Nile. Mm -hmm. was said to be black, which meant glorious and fertile. Mm -hmm. So it's taking a redefined history or a history that existed, you know, in this poem, the, the talking about the caves um, that had then been rewritten by a colonialist history, right. rewriting it, and then going back to Egypt, mm -hmm. to the Nile, uh, right. and, and rewriting it again in right. the way it should be. Right. 
very powerful. Yeah, and we circle and we circle and we circle. The American Poetry Review is a podcast presented by Radio Kismet. For more information about Radio Kismet, go to radiokismet.com. Also, please follow the American Poetry Review on all your social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.